Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Once again, it's my pleasure to welcome my friend Anthony Paul, who is an energy and strategy advisor from Trinidad and Tobago. Anthony supports governments in maximizing value from oil, natural gas projects, including advising national negotiation teams. Tony is presently senior advisor to the National Directorate of Hydrocarbons and Fuels in Mozambique. Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast, Anthony. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Sheila, for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. I wonder whether, given your experience, you can just tell us uh, what are the main elements that governments and developers of petroleum projects negotiate? And, and, and then we can perhaps look at each one of them as we progress. Sure. Well, let me give you some of the main ones. One, of course, is the area under the exploration of production license, the area covered, the boundaries, the coordinate boundaries. Another one is the duration of the agreement, the term, and then within that, the conditions that prevail during this time. And those conditions are quite a, a lot, and we can speak about some of those conditions, but generally they cover the obligations of the contractor, the obligations of the, of the government. In addition, the things like the jurisdiction under which this contract will be judged if they would with the court for rule of law and for arbitration. And there are other issues, of course, like benefit sharing, which is a major component of contracts. And that falls into different parts. It falls into fiscal, meaning taxes and royalties and revenue sharing. And that too has different models for doing that. And then there's the issue of participation by locals, either through a state company, through job creation, providing goods and services. And then finally, well, not only find the other things as well, but importantly, is the issue of how is the product to be used? Who takes delivery of what? And how much can be used in the local jurisdiction or exported and, and so on? So there are several issues that look at the whole entire progress of finding oil or gas, getting it out of the ground, doing, making sure that getting it out is done safely, that communities are protected, environment is protected, and making sure that benefits are shared equitably between the, in, the investor and the owner of the resource. And, and the, the clauses in there address some of those ways of getting that equitable sharing. Hmm. Okay, so that's quite a lot to reckon with. So I'm going to take a few of those to, for, for you to explain uh, to the listener more, uh, you know, succinctly. So when you say that uh, one of the most important components is rule of law, which is to say the jurisdiction under which the contract is recognized or the laws that are applied, you know, what does that mean and why is it important in a negotiation context? Sure. It's important because investors quite often don't know or trust governments or countries they haven't worked with before. So they would like to work with a jurisdiction, a rule of law, a court system that they're familiar with. So they're often asked to have it in their own home territory or in a generally recognized territory that has a long history of, of laws. Countries, on the other hand, have sovereignty to consider. And they want to not only make sure that, show that their legal system is robust, but want to even use the opportunity to, to build it, to get it stronger. So they don't want to necessarily have to take any judgments, any court actions outside of country. In addition to which, 
taking legal action out of country can be very, very expensive. And governments, we know, tend to have difficulty funding these major issues in, in court. You know, but that, that is just for the case of um, the, the, the jurisdiction under which the contract is, is ruled. Generally nowadays, companies tend to accept the local jurisdiction, but they then tend to have arbitration in a foreign jurisdiction, you know, in, in a different court or different kinds of rules. So it tends to be a blend, but generally the majority of contracts are now in the home jurisdiction of the of the invest of the um host government. Hmm. So so um it, it's really uh, from an investor's perspective, is their view of mitigating risk uh, uh, that in case of litigation they are operating in an environment which either they are not familiar or for whatever reason don't uh, have confidence and and so aspects of the negotiation is really finding a compromise between uh, the state as a sovereign state wanting to apply its entire rules and judicial system and a foreign investor wanted to feel comfortable that they will be protected. And, 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 and this I imagine can be quite sticky in the negotiation room, right? Yes, it can be. And quite often companies and governments find ways to overcome that by creating clauses and contracts, for instance, that give specific rights that might be, that, that, that will either supersede law or be grandfathered into future laws. So they do find ways to get those sticky clauses acceptable to both parties. Yeah, I imagine for most listeners, the, the other issue that you uh, referenced was what you term uh, negotiations around benefit sharing. Can you explain what you mean and, and, and uh, perhaps explain some of the models around uh, ways of sharing the benefits between presumably the developer and the host nation? Sure. So the benefit can be put very simply into revenue earned. Now that might sound a little bit coarse because, but if you look at the, 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 the highest value, it's the revenue that comes from selling the oil or gas. And how is that shared and who benefits in what proportion? And that really comes down to the nature of the fiscal system. But I'll, I'll speak later on about other kinds of benefits and how they are shared. So the fiscal system says, there's an expenditure that the company puts out to invest in this business. And once they get a product, they sell it, there's revenue. How does that revenue share? Because the investor brings something. The investor brings capital, technology, know-how. The state, the country brings the resource, the business opportunity. So both of them bring pieces of a business opportunity together. And therefore each of them expects the benefit. How do you share that? And the classic simple system is a tax system where you spend money, you get revenue from selling the product. There's a difference between what you spend and what you receive. And that difference is called profit. That profit is taxed at some rate. Now, typically in oil and gas, the profit margins in oil and gas ventures are very high compared to other ventures. So the tax rate in oil and gas tends to be higher than typical business taxes. So that is the simplest model, how the government gets its revenue. Now the other models amount to the same thing, but are factored different ways. 
So one of them is the production sharing model, where a government may say, I don't want necessarily want cash from you selling the oil. I want oil or gas myself that I can sell myself or use however which I, where I wish, including domestically for if it's oil, for refining, if it's natural gas, for power generation. So that's the production sharing arrangement. And there are other arrangements where the government says, okay, under my constitution, nobody can own this oil or gas. Nobody can do this except the state company, but I can hire a contractor under what is called a risk service contract. You spend the money, you take the risk, and then we negotiate what I pay you for it. And that payment is typically on a dollar per barrel, or so many cents per cubic foot of gas produced. So it's a fixed cost, sometimes with escalators, but it's, so there are three arrangements that says the investor brings money, know-how, technology, and takes out product and or cash. And that's the way, um, that, those are the, the fiscal benefit sharing. That's the main one. The others. Sure. So basically, when we are negotiating, uh, part of what we are doing is look at these variations of uh, benefit sharing and reaching consensus on not just the combination of them, but also uh, the extent which economically, uh, you know, the, the impact, the cake that has been shared, that you, you might have one option or you may have all of them for that matter. Uh, but ultimately, you have to be able to value them financially and economically and say, based on this, uh, if you wish, cocktail of arrangements, ultimately, the state's share is this and the investor's share is this. Would that be correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it comes back to what is the value that each party brings. Now, what the state brings is the resource itself. And that resource itself might be a lot it might be cheap to extract, it might be easy to extract, it might be close to markets, it may have access to a lot of services to bring the cost down. So the, 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 what has to be factored in is not just the geology, but the, the, the location, the politics, the, the, the social systems around it. So it's not a simple single number that can be applied to any license or any country. It really has to come down to the profitability of the resource that's being offered by the state. This is a, a, an interesting point you make because most of us think, uh, as you said, we bring value, we bring the resource, and we think it ends there. But we don't really apply our minds to what it costs uh, to extract it, transport it, and get it to the markets so that we can get that uh, X number of dollars per barrel. What you're saying is, it isn't self-evident what it's gonna cost until you've uh, studied the geotechnical uh, data. It isn't self-evident until you know where you're gonna sell it and what the infrastructure is that you need to get it there. And that it is when you factor all this that you know the true cost. And that that is what uh, the, the numbers game in the negotiations room is about. So I should ask you, so who generates that information? enough that both the state and the developer are looking at not just the same numbers, but have the same view of the value of the resource? So it's, that's a very good question. And actually, it should be looked at from both parties' point of view, because investors have a single goal, and that is to take as much of the value 
for their shareholders as quickly as possible. So they will design economic models. They will manage operations in ways to do that. What do I mean by that? They can, for instance, borrow from a parent company at a bank a rate higher than bank rates. So the parent company makes more profit through interest, for instance. They may procure services from an affiliated company at rates higher than market rates. For instance, legal services, accounting services, HR services, common services, and they can charge a higher rate. So you have to have both parties doing their own economic model as to what costs are real, how do you benchmark those costs, how do you make sure there's a way to, at the end of the day, audit those costs. So there must be a record keeping mechanism that has to be built into the contract so that you can do that. So yes, both parties have to understand the cost going in. Both parties also have to understand the marketing and companies, big international companies have a trading portfolio where they can sell a single product to multiple markets and get different prices and pay different costs for shipping or transportation and therefore create more value or less value as they see fit. So governments are then stuck. How do I know where my molecules have gone and how much was made for it? So the government has to say, what is the real price? Is it the price realized or the price reported? And what's the difference? So on both ends, the cost end and the revenue end, both parties have to have their heads around how do I decide what is acceptable? And then come to the table and say, let us come to something that we both agree on. So yes, both parties have to do that. You can't accept, well, no party ac accepts the others or, or shouldn't without having a sense of their own how to do that. Yeah, but uh, so two things. Uh, first of all, you make a very valid point that there's the cost end. We need to know essentially what does it cost? And, and, and that, you know, there's an element uh, of science and then there's an element of corporate strategy and there's just an element of people being ingenious enough to maximize value. Uh, for the yes. corporates. Uh, and by definition, in so doing, the risk is that you minimize value for the state. And so the state has to also do the same. Uh, and then you've got to look at the revenue end of things and get some kind of uh, a middle of the road. My question is who generates that information? Because you could argue that even the data that comes into the room, in other words, the data that is factored into the economic model can be questioned. And, you know, are, are there tools uh, that are accepted and used in the industry to say, if you apply this method, you as a government can accept that it is the gold standard in the industry and vice versa? Yeah, so there are many ways. Um, so let's look at the practicalities of how companies do it and governments do it, and then some of the mechanisms they use. So for instance, one of the best ways that governments have done it, and the Norwegians did this a lot in the beginning, is to say, we don't understand costs. So we can't audit or guide these companies or even question them. So we need to learn how to question. And what the Norwegians did quite cleverly is to put companies together in consortia, in joint ventures, with one being the operator. And the operator is then guided in how it conducts its activities through what is called a joint operating agreement. There's an oversight committee of the, the, com the companies where the joint ventures who would approve a work program who would approve a budget, who would approve expenditure, who would then approve the accounting procedures and the audit procedures and what documents need to be provided. So they then create a system 
that the accountability and a procurement procedure that warrants or tries to get the best price for the, the best cost for goods and services. So all these procedures are often written into the joint operating agreement. What the Norwegians did and a lot of countries do is to have a state company sitting as a member of that joint venture operation and seeing and learning these things. So initially you may not know, but you have to learn. And that's mm. one way of doing it. And the, the, the other companies who are experienced know how to challenge numbers going in. You know, so numbers, like since, since the cost of a rig, which is an expensive part of building a well, those are quite easily available on public, public websites. You have to pay for some of them. So costs are available. There are many benchmark studies done by industry firms that collect information from different companies around the world and say, this is the cost per ton of building a structure in this water depth, for instance. So there are ways to collect the data and the systems that can be put in place to collect that data and to validate that it's, it's robust numbers. Hmm. So listening to you, Tony, you know what strikes me? It's not so much the yeah. science of it. It's just the basic two things. One, the basic acceptance by the Norwegians in this case, or any other sovereign state that, you know, we are out of our comfort zone. This is not something we know. I think it is so important just to start with that acknowledgement. Because Absolutely. what it does is that it moves you to the next space. Well, how am I going to bridge the knowledge gap? My sense is that this very simple question isn't asked. This very obvious acceptance that, you know, uh, governments, at least when they first entered in the industry, because I'm assuming that was when the Norwegians first discovered oil in the North Sea, yeah. that, you know, we can't possibly. But the second thing is to say, but we are, are not going to let our lack of knowledge get in the way of us getting value. We will surround you with other people like you, and we will be part of the conversation, and they will be our checkmate. I think that that is so, uh, you know, practical, but so commonsensical, and yet few countries do this. They go into it alone with uh, a very experienced uh, multinational corporation. Contrary to what, what most people suggest, which is that you should flood in the room with lawyers, more and more it's clear to me that what you need are really people who understand the different uh, aspects of uh, the business. A am I correct in, in making that assumption? Absolutely, absolutely. Sheila, you know, I've, I've worked on many negotiations and many scenarios. And what I've found is that there are many different ways to do it, but there's a right way and a wrong way. And I've seen lawyers, very bright, very hardworking lawyers, being given the lead on negotiating contracts. And as I described many different components of a, of a contract, there are many different aspects that are very, very technical and need specialist people, like the, the geology, the reservoir behavior, the production, the markets, and so on. And the, 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 the other option I see is where you get a team of very skillful, experienced people working together, coming up with a strategy, coming up with what the terms they want, and then having the lawyers craft the language to get that. You know, because the other way where the lawyer takes the lead without the, the background or the, or the support of the technical team, is that lawyer tends to look for case studies, tends to look for models, tends to look at existing contracts, and tries to cut and paste the wording to fit the intent. 
But like I've been describing, each situation is very different. It's nuanced. So cutting and pasting tends to be dangerous because when you meet a situation, you didn't consider, you didn't factor in to your, your contract, then you get into real trouble. So yes, it takes a strong team. And, you know, the, the tragedy, Sheila, if you will allow me, is that quite often, without any fault of their own, governments can't afford or don't have a strong technical team to back their lawyers. And they can't afford to hire them. So therefore, they, they, they put the lawyers in the room with, you know, and they get to get some models for them and they get them to work and work to negotiate. And this lawyer might be negotiating several contracts with this team of lawyers and doing a good job as far as they're concerned with any limitations. But in the meantime, the companies have teams of lawyers, engineers, commercial analysts, economists, tax advisors, including consulting firms and law firms who they engage to put together their own negotiation strategy and backup information. And they spend millions of dollars and the government spends a few thousand dollars on, on salaries and so on, and then negotiate. But you know the tragedies, Sheila, is that quite often governments allow these companies to cost recover that negotiation is costs. So effectively the government is paying the other side to negotiate against it while claiming they can't afford to pay for good advice themselves. That is unfortunate, but it is the reality of many of the contracts that have been negotiated in the last half of the, of the last century and in the beginning of this century around the developing world. So, so in other words, uh, the investor treats the cost to the company of negotiating with government as part of the development cost and factors it into something that is recoverable from the government itself. Yes, you, you are yeah. right to describe that as, as a tragedy. So I'll tell you, when governments have said to me, we don't have enough money to ex, uh, afford experts, I have said to them, you can't afford not to afford. That's the only thing you must afford. You can, you can save on anything, but you can't save on the capacity to maximize in the negotiation because from that moment on, you are downhill and you can't recover. And, and so I, I, I see negotiations as an investment in protecting and extracting value. Absolutely. And, and, and actually, yeah. actually yeah. I would say that is the government that potentially could justify uh, saying, look, these are our terms. You don't want them. Uh, you don't accept them. It's going to cost you. Let's go to negotiations. Because in any case, uh, basically, the developer has a right of first refusal. But, you know, at the end, the government is still the authority to license. But I, I wanted to ask you something. You spoke earlier about what you termed an off-take agreement. Can you succinctly tell us what an off-take agreement is and why in the context of petroleum project is such an important uh, part of the suite of arrangements? Sure. So in... In the, after the oil is produced, governments have, depending on the contract they've signed, the option to take a share of the production in kind to use in the domestic market or to sell internationally, as do the, the, the parties and the investor side, the joint venture partners. So the offtake agreement has some components. It says who takes how much, when. So you take it in proportion, but the reality is that you can't take a proportion on a daily basis. The oil or natural gas 
is shipped in a pipeline, if it's natural gas in a pipeline, it's easy to divert quantities in proportion. If it's natural gas going into processing plants, a power plant or LNG plant, liquefied natural gas plant, then you take your share in a tank load if it's a LNG. If it's oil, you take your share in a tank load and you can't take it every day. So the off-tank agreement says who takes how much when. And typically that how much is what is called a loading, enough to fill a tanker to take it away. So the uptake agreement really manages who gets their portion in kind. Now, that's the physical part of taking the product. Beyond that, there's a question of, so what is the revenue that the off-taker reports back to the government for tax purposes? And the off-taker agreement often ends at the loading of the product, but the fiscal agreement goes all the way to the sales point of the product. So unless there's a mechanism to connect the two, the government has two different departments measuring different things and comparing them differently. So the offtake agreement is important from the, from the producer side, joint venture companies, don't, they don't care. They just want their product to take to wherever they want to, to market it. But the government has to have a good understanding of that in terms of both who takes how much when and how that is disposed of and at what price, because that's what factors into the revenue that then factors into the tax computation. So as with most things, it's not as straightforward as it implies, because, you know, as you said, if, if you just focus on they have taken X tankers mm -hmm. and forget that somewhere between filling that tanker and transporting it, yeah. there's a price that it commands in whatever market it ends and that it is the margins they get there from the government's uh, perspective, which translates in potential revenue. And, and that you can't lose sight of that in the okay. offtake agreement. No. But, but what is really interesting is the timing of the offtake relative to the market cycle in the year. Yep. Because again, if you don't know this, you could end up buying uh, gas at the time when in the gas cycle, depending on where they are selling the gas, uh, which may be used primarily for heating, uh, mm. that uh, in effect, you, it's a lame duck. And, and yeah. so, you, so, so when we are in the negotiating room, we are looking not just at the price, but we are also looking at this market cycle and what it does and what we know uh, historically about whether the price peaks in a European winter or for that matter, uh, you know, Asian winter, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, so in the end, uh, even though governments write a lot of things into law, actually the law can only go so, so far because even if you say we will have uh, an offtake or we will uh, production share or we will have a joint venture, the elements that define value in respect of those clauses or those agreements is so critical that you could end up seemingly having a suite of very good agreements. But actually, when it comes right down to what ends up in the national coffers, the delivery is very little. And you've hit on a very, very important point there, Sheila, because we have, we've, people get help writing laws, writing contracts, and they may be good on paper, but the underpinning technical knowledge behind getting that right for you 
and importantly, the implementation of it through a, a knowledgeable and capable regulator. Those are very important pieces that we often miss out. So although the language in the contract may read very well, there may be gaps in there that aren't easily filled without somebody overseeing it. And having good people on the government side to first negotiate the contracts and then oversee them is so important. So you said two things which uh, I, I hope are helpful to the listener. The one is the emphasis in that, of course, you need good laws, but the laws can only go so far uh, because when you get into the negotiating room, you now have a real situation. And then you have to apply that law to that, the peculiarities of that deposit and that company based on its strategy and that company based on where it sells and the market dynamics. But the other thing that you've said, which I think is important, is, is uh, the ability of governments to revisit contracts. Because this has been quite contentious, hasn't been, that some investors cry foul and say there is no contract stability. There is no legal stability uh, because the governments are always changing. How can we open the window for either party for that matter to revisit the negotiations without the sense that that destabilizes uh, either the contract or the investment uh, environment? Sheila, it's, it's, it's a sad reality, but I said, I said it earlier, I said companies have no qualms revisiting a contract and asking for a change. And yet governments are told they must have stability. In other words, don't move. That goes back to the root of the issue and why we are discussing contracts 40, 50, 60 years after independence. Because it was written, uh, th these conditions were written hundreds of years before that, when we were seen as two unequal parties, when there's one superior party and one inferior party. And the way contracts and laws were written by our colonial masters and those who followed in their footsteps, who gave guarantees to the colonial masters that we continue the status quo, we continue with those models, which gave the investors the right to renegotiate, but the governments had no rights. In other words, you're not equal. And that is the reality we face. And, and we accept that because we've had to in the past. But if you, and if you try to go against it, then you're, you're labeled as something radical. You know? And you, you, therefore, you, you back off because the world doesn't like people who think radically, although they say you should think radically now. In any case, the point I'm making is this. Governments have an equal status in these contracts and should behave like that. One of the ways I, I like to hear it say is that governments should, should behave as owners and shapers of their own destiny and not acceptors of donations or favors. You're bringing value to this venture. And unless you recognize the value you bring, you will not get it. And that's that. That's so ability to negotiate contracts or go back on, on revisit terms should sit on both sides. Some governments have over time put that in law. So, for instance, they've put in things that economic equilibrium clauses in contracts. So, if markets change dramatically and the share of revenue shifts dramatically to one side rather than the other, then there's a formula built into the contract to be balanced, or there's a mechanism that triggers a process of renegotiation to rebalance. 
So there are mechanisms. Other mechanisms include a rate of return structure where the share is not fixed by a fixed percentage, the share of profit split, for instance, but is determined by the actual profitability of the venture. So as prices drop, the balance changes in one direction. As prices get higher, the balance changes in the other direction. So that both parties end up equally well off. And unfortunately, some of the contracts that were signed in the early days didn't have this equilibrium built into it. And governments have continued to, to, to not be able to visit and say, let's, okay, prices have changed dramatically. The volumes we've discovered are much different to what we had anticipated. The producibility of these reservoirs are much better than we thought. Therefore, the cost of doing it is much lower. Mm. Yes, uh, especially to the extent that uh, the fiscal terms are fixed before the development phase because uh, you could end up with something completely different. But uh, I mean, I think the, the, we are, what you're suggesting is that actually part of what you should do in negotiations is mitigate the risk of disagreement downstream and that it serves both parties to ensure that there exists an agreement that serves equally as much as possible. Because if not, what happens is that you're just creating a window for potential litigation downstream. And, 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 and the idea that you should recognize that sometimes prices go up so low that you have to revisit it, but then the reverse is true. What I have seen is, is that uh, there is this notion of uh, a stability clause. Uh, I wonder whether you can comment on the merits of uh, a stability clause in the face of what you've said about price swings. So there, there are two ways to look at the stability clause. I mean, there's the notion that a company making an investment and therefore wants some guarantee around the rate of return it will get. But I can tell you this, the company works out the rate of return it's going to get based on a risk analysis. In other words, the risk is factored in upfront. So what they're getting has been factored already. So when you put the stability clause, it means you're getting another protection around risk, if you get what I'm saying. So, so, the, so the companies like to have the cake and eat it too with the stability clause. Now, that is one side of the, of the argument. The other side is you don't want arbitrary changes in tax laws, insuring after you've signed a contract and made your investment. So you want to make sure that some level of stability remains in the agreement. So you do get at least what you put in. So there are arguments for and against stability clauses. And, but, but stability clauses often go beyond just fiscal. So for instance, there are instances where companies put clauses, clauses in that say, you will not do anything that will change the economics of this. So I've seen that extended to, if you want me now to put in conditions to preserve the environment, you have to pay for it from your share. In other words, I have the responsibility to preserve the environment, but if I do anything wrong, you have to pay for it. So it gets quite bad if it's not reined in. So the question is, what do you stabilize? Or what do you not stabilize? And I've seen companies go to the extreme where they've tried to stabilize everything and lock mm. it into, into, in time. And even though laws and norms around treating the environment, treating the communities have changed over time, 
the companies have taken no responsibility for that. They're giving it all on the government. So the mm. government ends up taking a lot of the risks that the companies factored in to their economic models to get the benefits that they're getting. So it's, it's a mm. double-edged sword. And again, governments have to enter these things quite guardedly. Uh, one of the things companies like to do is leave everything outside the law and push them into a contract. Governments, on the other hand, should really put as little as negotiable as possible in the contracts and leave it in the law, as most developing countries do. Most developing countries have very simple contracts, which are really term sheets, and everything else is covered by law. You know, but because quite often countries enter oil and gas without a, a legal framework for oil and gas, the production agreements, these contracts ended up being de facto the law. And in many cases, companies had governments take these agreements to parliament to be approved by parliament and to have the effect of law. Hmm. So, yeah, and, and, then, and then strangely, they then have a clause on it as parliament or the, the minister shall not change this. Now, effectively, what they're doing is telling the minister that he's binding future parliaments from changing the law. Yeah, I can see how the notion that a whole sovereign state yeah. is barred from changing its own uh, laws would be fundamentally unconstitutional. I can't imagine any sensible judge accepting that. Uh, but the, the, the point you make is this, that one, uh, a lot of effort goes into uh, protecting the interests of uh, investors. And because they have different experiences in different jurisdictions, they come to the mm -hmm. table in already experientially prepared. Where, and, and unfortunately, many uh, countries, especially in the emerging markets, are first-time petroleum developers. Uh, if, even if you go back 50 years ago, they, they, they are not equal, if you wish, to the likes of uh, uh, Shell and BP that have been operating in uh, uh, other jurisdictions. And, and I think it is this uh, asymmetry, which is very difficult, uh, because already that means that uh, the investors start off on, uh, you know, uh, a position of advantage. But, I mean, let's cut as a last uh, uh, parting shot. I mean, we've taken a cynical view, but clearly uh, over time, there, there are investors that go into developing countries wanting to maximize value, but not necessarily to uh, unduly take advantage of the lack of knowledge because it can't serve them in the long run. So, so that's an interesting point. And it's one that I've, I've seen play out in both directions, meaning yes or no. Typically, when you have somebody on the ground as a country manager, that person develops some empathy, typically, right? And does things to kind of rebalance what, you know, the, the hand he's dealt. But invariably, every country manager, every project leader has incentives that are based on the benefits they bring home to the investor. So self-service human nature, that's where you go first. So companies do speak long-term equity, but they also speak to the other side of the mouth, taking we should do this in what we will call something like enlightened self-interest. In other words, we will do this, but how does it benefit us? as well. So that trade-off happens within the companies. 
and they always, as you quite rightly said, have a better knowledge, better experience, better ways of putting across their points of view and getting it sold to the other side. And they have a lot more information and people to kind of support them doing that. So yes, there are people, and I've seen companies, I've seen companies try to do the writing and I've done the writing by meaning, let us not try to take everything, let's share it in the way the government wants. Now the challenge with that is that quite often the government has not articulated what it wants and where it wants to prioritize the value it retains and the benefit it gets. I said earlier, the companies are very clear what their goal is, is to take as much of the value back to their shareholders as quickly as possible. Governments have not, typically have not articulated where, what their goal is. I mentioned earlier too that there are different ways to share benefits and fiscal is one. The others we haven't got into yet, but the things like using the produced material domestically to, for conversion, for value addition, to support industrialization, to support other sectors, getting locals to participate, to get new skills, to improve their skills, improving infrastructure institutions to support the training of people and so on. So governments don't typically articulate upfront where they want to get the value. And that's mm. where companies struggle to say, fine, you want some more, tell me how. One thing I've mm -hmm. discovered, I've learned too, is companies are very, very good at the operational aspects of policy, much better sometimes than governments. So if you clarify what your policy is, what your intent is, tell to the companies and say, let's work together and let me see how you can make this happen. That to me is a, is a, is a formula for success. The government should decide, decide what they want and the companies can help them decide what they want by making them understand what goes into getting that. So they can make good choices and then companies working to get that done. So there's, if one thing is clear in my mind is that there must be ongoing dialogue around what countries want and how companies can help them get it. Mm. So uh, with every answer, you open Pandora's box, but uh, <laughs> I guess at some point we have to, to close shop. Let me just say this, that, you know, your last remarks are really essential because in my mind, value is not uh, self-evident. Uh, value also is not permanent. Government needs to know what value looked like 50 years ago and what value looks like 50 years later. And that, as you said, it's, it's important for governments to go into the negotiation with a clear sense of what success looks like. My fear is this, that it, this is not often the case. And so while it is true that uh, companies may have more commercial and technical knowledge, the truth of the matter is in the space of knowing what you want, there can be absolutely no excuse for governments not knowing and not at least going into that room with the sense that, look, we have five uh, points here. The first three are non-negotiable. You, you don't give those, you don't get a license. The first, right. we can vary them. I think even that modicum of clarity, I think yep. helps a lot. But also to your point, it helps the other person know what they can relinquish and what they are, can get in exchange. And, and with that, I think your notion of uh, benefit sharing becomes more reality. But as I said, you know, when we think about negotiations, uh, this is only one aspect of the issues. And it just shows that being clear about not only what you want, but what the tools are that you must minimally have when you walk into that room 
is, is essential and also knowing where you're going to get the, the rest of the tools if you don't have them in-house. So with those uh, few words, my friend, thank you very much. Uh, I, I fear that I think we'll have to revisit a lot of these uh, issues in future because to be fair, we've only scratched the surface. So thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's, as always, it's uh, very uh, insightful listening to you. And it's always a pleasure chatting with you, Sheila. I really enjoyed it. And thanks very much. I'll be happy to come back and look at some of these things in the future anytime you call on me.